I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ramdas's Love Serve Remember Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma Hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ramdas, Krishnadas, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more. The Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to Dale Borglum's Healing at the Edge. We are very happy to share with you Dale's profound insight and open heart. Please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Dale to support this podcast. During this time of the pandemic, I've been getting a lot of phone calls and messages from people who have been having a hard time. And Nobody really reports they're having a hard time about the pandemic, but people are having a hard time about life. And it seems that the the pandemic, that sheltering in place, not traveling around so much, having a quieter life, has been uncovering the issues that have been lurking underneath the surface all along. So that this is a, it's almost like we're all on a bit of a retreat here. And during retreats, even though very often by the end of the retreat, there is some wonderful healing that has happened. Healing happens only through contacting and then contacting with love and compassion, that which is difficult to contact, that which we have been avoiding in the past. One of the things I have found that has been most useful for myself and other people is developing a compassion practice for all other beings. That as we sit here in our individual homes all around North America, maybe some of you are even further away than that, and reading news stories about how people are having a hard time Financially, people are having a hard time medically. People are having a hard time socially. Rather than feeling hopeless and helpless, 
we can begin to do practice to send compassion to beings all around, feeling connected with who is out there having a hard time. Compassion, of course, is the exact same thing as loving kindness, but in the context of suffering. Stephen Levine very poetically put it, compassion is the ability to keep your heart open in hell. So that in, in a very real way, compassion is going beyond wanting to be happy and willing to be present. Instead of grasping at happiness, we're diving into the moment. What I find is that when I'm really feeling compassion, there's some combination of sadness and joy. What I mean by joy is a joy that transcends happiness and sadness. But it is a sad thing how much suffering there is in the world. I remember once being with Maharaji and a young woman came to him, actually a girl came to him and said, Maharaji, I'm feeling so sad. And he said, I love sadness. It makes me feel closer to God. Is it possible to open to the way so many people are having a hard time right now and feel the sadness that is in the world, that is collective, and find a joyfulness at the same time. And that is what we will be exploring today. Compassion requires another combination, and that combination is tenderness and fierceness. I think there's often a misunderstanding of what compassion really is, that it's being sweet and nice, and at times it is. At times it is. The Dalai Lama says, my religion is kindness. But kindness isn't always being nice. It might be the kind thing at times to be fierce, it might be the kind thing to say no with an open heart. The other thing that's important to remember is that almost always in Eastern traditions, compassion is taught as compassion for the other person. I'm the, I'm the meditator, I'm the practitioner, and I'm feeling compassion for you. And what I'm really finding in my own life and people I work with is that very often what's necessary is compassion for yourself, being willing to be with those places where you're pulling back, feel what that's like in a very direct, immediate, naked way, and move beyond that then into a compassionate relationship with that which is difficult. But usually what happens, or often what happens at least, is that we get fixated on the trigger of what is bothering us rather than the feeling of the suffering itself. We look at, oh, it's Donald Trump. Oh, it's the traffic. Oh, it's the weather. Oh, it's what's going on in my body. In Tibetan Buddhism, there's a very wonderful slogan, drive all blames into oneself, which is suggesting that rather than blaming the environment for what we're feeling, we have to come very directly into contact with that, take responsibility for what we're feeling. So that the last few weeks we've been talking about being grounded, being centered, working with fear. We don't just immediately jump into compassion. Compassion is possible only after we have met our experience directly, that we have begun to be mindful of how suffering is arising in our life. Can you feel 
the difference between pain and suffering? Can you feel the difference between having difficult experiences, just even looking at your computer or the television and seeing how people are suffering, feel the pain that's in the world, and you keeping your heart open, you not getting caught in suffering. Compassion is really bringing a quality of spaciousness to the encounter with pain in the world. Does pain necessarily lead to suffering? I think it was last week we were talking about how uncertainty leads to stress, but does stress necessarily lead to anxiety? Recent studies have been showing that stress is not bad for the health. What's bad for the health is believing that stress is bad for the health. It's your attitude about stress that is causing inflammation in the body. And in fact, people with a great deal of stress in their life, if they're feeling that stress is not necessarily bad, but can lead to compassionate action, have less illness than people that have low stress. Can we begin to work with all of the all of the dualities in the world and have that bring us to a more open-hearted relationship with what it is that we're experiencing. So the first practice that I'd like to uh, explore together is something called compassionate abiding. And it's a very quick way of creating compassion for yourself. It, it takes one breath. So how much simpler could it be? You notice that you're not feeling compassion. You notice that you're caught somewhere. You notice that you're being bothered. Bring your attention into your body and you notice the place where you're holding tension, resistance. You breathe clarity into that part of your body. And as you breathe out, you feel spaciousness in that part of your body. One breath, breathe in clarity. What does it really feel like to be caught? And then breathe spaciousness. Just imagine that that, you're part of, that part of your body is becoming more spacious. I remember one day I had a very busy morning, a lot of phone calls, a lot of emails. I drove to the Fairfax post office to get my mail. Summer day in California. And I was walking from my car to the post office. I was still back at my desk thinking about people that I had been talking to. And as I noticed that, I said, okay, compassionate abiding. I breathed more clarity into my shoulders. They relaxed. I breathed spaciousness. And all of a sudden, in one breath, there I was, open-hearted, being with what was going on. Why don't we try this right now? As you breathe in, you are refining your mindfulness in that part of your body. Clarity is the knowing quality, mindfulness. You're more mindful of the place you're holding. And as you breathe out, you imagine that part of the body is becoming spacious. Now, interestingly enough, this exercise is called compassion and abiding, but I never mentioned compassion. I mentioned spaciousness. And spaciousness, the spacious heart, is one of the qualities of the compassionate heart. I think it's really important to understand what we mean by spaciousness. Compassion initially is something that we do. I, Dale, am cultivating compassion 
for myself, for you, whatever it might happen to be. But as we go more deeply into compassion, we begin to realize that we are compassion. When we go beyond concept, when we begin to surrender into the heart, its nature itself is spaciousness. It's beyond concept. We're beginning to explore the possibility of being in the heart without thinking, I am heartfelt, I am compassionate, I am doing this. Compassion is a state of being. It's not an emotion. Compassion is not an emotion. It's not, I'm trying to be nice, I'm trying to be kind. It's resting in the nature of the heart. And the assumption here that we can explore is that when we rest in the nature of the heart, we will be compassionate. It isn't something we have to do. Another quality of the compassionate heart is a sense of connectedness, that I'm connected with you. It's not like I am the healer and you're the client and I am going to shoot compassion over to you. It's that it's compassion with the other person, that we are together in the suffering. It's not like my suffering and your suffering, it's the suffering. And that the way, if, if I'm really open-hearted, the way you are suffering is affecting me. The way I am suffering, the way am I, I am not suffering is affecting you. Okay, so we're willing to open to and connect with people in this very deeply intimate and profound way that we're not holding back. We're making a commitment to dive into the pain of humanity in a certain way. Now, that might not sound like a lot of fun, diving into the pain of humanity, because humanity's got a lot of pain. Here's a quote from the Dalai Lama. If you want others to be happy, practice compassion. If you want to be happy, practice compassion. Imagine how simple life becomes when your motivation for action is compassion. It's not, am I going to get enough? Do they like me? What am I looking like as I'm doing this? But what is the compassionate thing to do? What will open my heart more in this particular moment? When I say that the nature of the heart is spacious, surrendering into the spacious heart can be a, a vulnerable and potentially frightening leap if we haven't done the work that we've been talking about the last few weeks of getting grounded, getting centered, becoming embodied, if there isn't somebody there who can bear the spaciousness and then going beyond the somebody into nobody. Ramdas's last movie was called Becoming Nobody, but you've got to become somebody before you can become nobody, right? If you just jump into nobodiness, it's going to be a mess, <laughs> so first of all, we become somebody. First of all, we we get grounded, we get centered. There is a, an autonomous I who is, who is able to be with all the botheration of life, all the vicissitudes, all the suffering that's in here and out there. The desire for pleasant feelings, though, often subverts compassion into sorrow, that if, if we're trying to be happy all the time and we see suffering out there or in here, we will very likely pull away from that. Compassion requires the ability to switch our priorities from 
being happy to being present, being awake, being alive, being with all of it. The word compassion means with passion. And interestingly, uh, we can just think about how the word passion has changed its meaning. Originally, passion was like the passion of Christ. It meant suffering, Christ's suffering. But now we think of passion as being intensely excited, being really very intense. Does passion need to be suffering? Can we be passionately involved with our lives, with the lives of others around us? And not getting caught in, I'm suffering, but being open-hearted. Walt Whitman said, sometimes touching another human being is almost more than I can bear. We've all had that feeling. Sometimes it's almost more than I can bear because there's so much love. Sometimes it's almost more than I can bear because there's so much suffering. But can we begin to train ourselves to touch another human being and bear how remarkable that is? Even extending that to touching ourselves. Can we look at ourselves and love ourselves as much as we've ever loved anybody else? Qualities of compassion. Spacious heart. Connected heart, warm heart. Those are the three defining qualities. Is your heart warm? Is it connected? Is it spacious? You can use any one of those three as a practice. Throughout the rest of the day, keep checking in. Is my heart connected? Is it connected to the people around me? Is it connected to myself? Or am I getting lost in my mind? Am I getting lost in an automatic, unconscious relationship with what it is that's going on? Being connected means at times being connected to suffering because there is suffering in the world. Another quality of compassion that is remarkably instructive is compassion is equalizing and switching yourself with another person. If you think that you're better or worse than somebody else, in that moment, compassion will not be possible. You're walking down the street. There is a homeless person who is panhandling he or she has this sign, help me, I've got children, I'm hungry. The easiest thing to do, possibly, is to feel pity that, well, look at me, I've got a house, I've got a car, my life is together. I'll give this person some money. But you're giving it out of pity rather than out of compassion. You're not equalizing, you're not switching. Pity is the near enemy of compassion. It can look like compassion. You're donating, you're acting kind, but you're doing it from the energetic stance of being pulled away from that person rather than feeling, I'm willing to connect. I'm really willing to be there with that person right now. Can we even then do this with ourselves? The part of you that judges yourself, this one part of you that says, oh, Dale, oh, Ramdev, how can you act like that? I mean, look at how silly you are, the superego. Can you have compassion for that part of yourself? Can you keep coming back to the sense of equality, but even much more than equality, a willingness to feel what you imagine the other person is feeling? You're switching. You're putting yourself in the other person's shoes. What does it feel like to be a homeless person? Maybe you can't completely know, but you can imagine. It's really impossible to have compassion for somebody until you can imagine what they're feeling, until you can open up to what must it be like to be that person. 
my favorite line these days is Donald Trump is going to be at your bedside when you're dying. Now, that often elicits gasps of excitement from people. But what we're saying here is if you cannot imagine what it's like to be Donald Trump and the suffering that is Donald Trump, or maybe just your neighbor, but we'll use the extreme example here. If you can't imagine what it's like to be him and to feel what he's feeling, it will be impossible to have compassion for him. And if you have, if you can't have compassion for him, that place that you're blocking that will be limiting how you'll be living and eventually how you'll be dying. Is it possible to open up to all beings, not just even Donald Trump, but all Republicans and all Democrats <laughs> and all dictators and make yourself vulnerable, but at the same time, because we're so grounded and centered that we're not getting lost in that. So compassion is a covenant among equals rather than us standing apart and shooting compassion from a safe, safe perspective. I'd like to read a short quote from Pema Chodron, one of my all-time favorite quotes. She says, Just as nurturing our ability to love is a way of awakening the heart, so also is nurturing our ability to feel compassion. Compassion, however, is more emotionally challenging than loving kindness because it involves the willingness to feel pain. It definitely requires the training of a warrior. When we practice generating compassion, we can expect to experience our fear of pain. Compassion practice is daring. It involves learning to relax and allow ourselves to move gently toward what scares us. The trick to doing this is to stay with emotional distress without tightening into aversion to let fear soften us rather than harden into resistance. The point she's making here is a really important one, that compassion isn't really learned when the doctor says, I've got really bad news for you, or compassion isn't learned when your relationship is in that difficult place where you're having a hard time communicating. Compassion is learned in that moment where you notice you're not present, you've been lost, and you're going to come back to being present. Do you do that with compassion, with kindness, with connectedness? Or do you do it with some judgment? Is there some violence, some subtle violence of get back to being present? Some slight critical relationship with how you're relating to this place of having lost it again. So that again and again, can we find that place of fierce tenderness? That it's not a tenderness that's sloppy. It's, it's right there. It's cutting through, but it's not violent. This wonderful combination of tenderness and fierceness. Okay. That's a great question. I have a, I have a similar story. I'll tell my story. I was in India. I just got into India. I was fresh out of Stanford, thought I was here to get enlightened. I was in Benares, a place where there were a lot of beggars uh, right by the main bathing god. There were maybe a hundred people lined up uh, squatting on the street with begging bowls in front of them. And I thought I'd be a really good guy, change a bunch of money. I got a whole pocket of coins and I was going down the road, putting a coin in each person's begging bowl. 
until I got to somebody that stopped me. It was a young woman who had leprosy. She had no hands and no feet. She was on a wooden platform with wheels that kept her about three or four inches off the ground. To set the stage here, it was uh, 110 degrees. It was supposedly the most crowded square mile on the planet at that time. Cobblestone Street, chaos, noise, dust, the whole India experience. So, and she has rusty tin cans shoved on the stumps of her arms, right? And I see her and, and strapped to her chest is a tiny baby with dirty rags. Uh, She's strapped to her chest. And I see this and my mind begins to spin. I say, oh my God, what's going to happen to this baby? How can she even have conceived a child? What is she thinking? What's going to happen to this baby? And instead of giving her a coin like I had given everyone else, I reached in my other pocket, took out a bill, a piece of currency, put it in her bowl. She looked at the money. She started getting angry. She looked back at the money. She looked up at me. She was really angry. She knocked the bowl. The money went flying. She picked up the bowl with her tin can covered stumps, put the bowl on her cart and angrily propelled herself away. End of the story. I'm standing there thinking, what happened? Should I be embarrassed? What was that about? When I thought about it long enough, I came to the conclusion that I had given her the money out of pity rather than out of compassion, and that she couldn't afford to take money from somebody who felt sorry for her. I asked myself, what should I have done? I kind of asked myself Maureen's question. How could I have approached that differently? And when I ask people in groups, when I tell this story, they say, well, you could have just given her money out of compassion, or you should have done this or that. But I was unable to do any of those things. I was freaked out by what I saw. And what I needed to do in that moment was have compassion for the part of me that was so terrified by that baby, that that baby was reminding me how unsafe the world is, how my early childhood was, even though I had great parents, was not, I had uh, some traumas uh, through accidents. Because I couldn't have compassion for her, because I was so caught, I needed to have compassion for myself. I've got a friend. Compassion, once again, is not a unidirectional experience. It's not that we're shooting compassion. I'm shooting compassion at the homeless person or the beggar in India or whoever might happen to be. It's I'm going into the state of compassion, which includes me and the beggar and all of humanity in a certain way. And if you're having, if you're trying to have compassion for this other person and you're not succeeding, then what in you is resisting? Can you have compassion for that? Are there different levels of compassion from Nicholas? So are there levels of compassion Nicholas asked, he's trying to have compassion for the president and not doing too well. And uh, there's kind of two ways to answer that question. One way is that there are two levels of compassion. There's relative compassion and absolute compassion. Relative compassion is, is I, Dale, am cultivating compassion for you or for Donald Trump or for the beggar in India or whoever it might happen to be. Absolute compassion is trusting my true nature. There's nobody doing anything. It's I am compassion. 
Uh, I'm not sure that's exactly what Nicholas is asking, though. I think he's saying, do we start out with the most difficult case? And it might be easier to have compassion for somebody that's not so hard to have compassion for. Traditionally, in Buddhist practices, there are three levels of practice where, first of all, you cultivate loving kindness or compassion for somebody that it's easy to have compassion for, somebody you care about. I look at the screen, I see Paula, I love Paula, I could have compassion for anywhere that Paula's caught, that's an easy thing to do. Then maybe there's somebody else there that I don't know who you are at all, so then I, I work with having compassion for you. And then there's John, that's really hard to have compassion for. Just kidding, John. <laughs> okay, but then you work up <laughs> from somebody that's easy to somebody who's neutral to somebody that's really difficult. Joseph Goldstein tells the story that he was at this this uh, ashram in India where he and I were meditating together at that certain point. And his teacher, he was doing a different practice than I was, told him to do loving kindness practice for somebody who was easy to do it for, somebody neutral and somebody difficult. And when he got to the neutral person, he realized there was a gardener there at the Burmese temple who he had as much of a relationship with, he said, as a telephone pole, just the guy who was in the garden. So he started doing loving kindness practice for the gardener and they became great friends. Yes, he opened his heart to this guy. Here's not the telephone pole, but this wonderful human being. That was loving kindness instead of compassion, but it's the same idea that it's like a muscle. It's like going to the gym. Starting out with Donald Trump, if you don't like Donald Trump, or even if you do like Donald Trump, I mean, he's very metaphorical for everybody. He's the all-time meme, if you will. Uh, might not be the best place to start. So when we talk about levels, let me read another quote from Kaolo Rinpoche. And this is another one of my favorite all-time quotes. I'm going to read it really slowly and take it almost as a guided meditation. You live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality. You are that reality. When you recognize this, you realize that you are nothing. And being nothing, you are everything. That is all. One of the difficult intellectual points of Buddhism, which turns into a very practical point, is that the nature of the heart is emptiness. It's empty of concept. It's empty of self. It's empty of concept, particularly the concept of self. The, the heart is boundless, boundlessly spacious. It has room in it for all the suffering of all sentient beings in the universe. Yet we're lost in illusion that there is this, all these appearances, all the duality. There's Republicans and Democrats. There's, there's COVID and non-COVID. We live in the appearance of things, but there is a reality. And the reality is that we are boundlessly spacious. We are pure consciousness that there really is not a solid reality out there in a certain way. Thomas Merton says, love and prayer are learned in the hour when prayer becomes impossible and the heart turns to stone. 
so that in those moments when the heart closes, that's the time in which we're able to really cultivate love and compassion. When we're really lost, do we give up then? Do we doubt that it's possible? Every situation that you and I or anyone opens to, every situation is open to compassion. There is no situation that is not open to compassion. What I'd like to do then is talk about another practice called Tong Len, T-O-N-G-L-E-N. It's a very powerful practice. It's one of the main tools in my toolkit of how to be in the world. I know some of you have heard about this. I know some of you practice this. Trump supporter here, these comments aren't funny to me. Well, what I'm saying here is that whether you're a Trump supporter or not a Trump supporter, he is somebody that elicits a lot of strong response. And for many people, it's a negative response. For many people, it's a positive response. And either way, I'm not trying to be funny here. What I'm saying is we, we pick somebody who, as soon as we hear about him, we get lost in concept. And when I talk to people who are really against Trump or people who are really for Trump, in either side, almost always the mind and heart close down that it is so conceptual that there is no space for communication. I, I have never talked to somebody who likes or doesn't like Trump, and in talking to them, anything has ever changed. It's like everything is set in cement. So that uh, all I'm saying is that, that, that Trump is, the, is somebody who is eliciting a lot of very strong feelings. And he will, any place where there's still unconscious reaction to him, that's going to be there as you are dying. So coming back to the practice of Tonglen. So Tonglen is a way of uh, cultivating compassion. It's at the relative dualistic level of compassion. I'm going to feel compassion for somebody else. Uh, and here in the West, I think it's very useful to cultivate. There's five stages to this practice. The fourth stage is the main body of the practice. When you get really experienced with it, often you can go right to the fourth part of it. But uh, just to explain it, I think it's useful to look at all five stages here in the beginning. So the first stage is opening your heart. You have to open your heart. You can remember a time when your heart was open, when uh, your child was born, when you felt close to God, when you were driving down the road and had experience of profound non-duality, as happened to one of my friends uh, who's smiling. Uh, Any time when you remember, when you felt deeply open-hearted, just priming the pump, if you will, flashing on compassion. One of my teachers said that when, when he wants to flash on compassion, he remembers a time when he was a, a young boy in Tibet and he saw other boys stoning a puppy and it just ripped his heart open. It just ripped his heart open. Okay. So you begin to open your heart in any way that works for you. You remember God, you remember the birth of your child, something in nature. 
And then we're going to begin to do the practice for another person or for a part of yourself. So why don't we, in this case, think of a part of yourself that has been having a hard time lately? Some, it doesn't have to be a huge, horrible thing, but some way where you've been suffering some, just remembering that. And imagine that that part of you that's been suffering is sitting across from the meditating you. There's meditating you and there's suffering you. And suffering you is sitting across from you. You can see the suffering written on meditating you's face. Okay? And the, the, so the second part of the, the practice is you begin to feel the suffering of this other person. If it's somebody that's not you, you're imagining what it is they're feeling. And if it's you, it's a part of you, you obviously know what this is like because of you. But it's not just imagining something. It's right now, can you feel that part that has been suffering? What does it feel like in your body? It's not just a, a, a concept. It's not just a visualization. It's what does the suffering feel like? Can you meet it directly and intimately right now? And feel this more and more directly, more and more willing to feel that suffering until you start to feel compassion. You begin to feel a naturally arising wish that this part of you be free from suffering. You want this part of you to not be caught in suffering. Your heart begins to feel more and more spacious. You're connected to this part of yourself that's been suffering. You're willing to feel the suffering and having a compassionate relationship with that. And as compassion deepens, it, it, you become more and more willing to let your open heart meet that suffering, more and more feeling a wish that you be free from suffering. And suffering deepens, compassion deepens, finally to the point where meditating you is willing to take the suffering into you so that as you breathe in, you imagine that the suffering is congealing in the suffering part of you and it's coming into your body, into your heart of hearts. You're taking the suffering with compassion and you're sending the antidote with loving kindness. Taking, focusing on compassion, sending, focusing on loving kindness. If you want to use a visualization to keep the mind busy, you can add the visualization. Taking the suffering is hot, dark smoke with compassion. Sending the antidote is cool white light with loving kindness. There is no need to fix what you take in to transmute it. You're just taking it into the vastness of the open heart and sending the boundless loving kindness that is never going to run out. You're not 
having to fix it. You're just taking it. You're putting yourself in this place of willingness to take the suffering in. You're not taking the situation in, but the suffering in relationship to the situation. And then inviting all the people in the world who are suffering in roughly approximately the same way as this part of you to join you. So that we're taking the practice beyond a personal thing with you or with another person to the quality of suffering itself. There's an, a, a countless number of people gathered around the suffering you in front of you. And once again, you begin to feel the collective suffering of all these beings. Feeling it more and more directly until you begin to feel compassion for the collective. A deep wish that all of these beings be free from suffering. You know what their suffering feels like. It's very similar to your own. deepening compassion to the point that you become willing to take the collective suffering into you. As you breathe in, their suffering is congealing with an optional visualization, taking it with compassion into your heart of hearts, sending the antidote with the optional visualization with loving kindness the practice riding on the breath. And then finally bidding all these people farewell, including that suffering part of yourself. You may notice that their faces are lighter. There's not so much suffering written on their faces as you say goodbye to them. Coming back into your body, taking a few grounding breaths, a few centering breaths, clear awareness, supporting open-heartedness, spacious heart, spacious enough to include all of the suffering.
I've done this practice how many thousands of times, I don't know. And I've never felt more toxified at the end. I've never felt like I picked up bad energy. Uh, I think just the very notion of compassion itself allows us to take in all that suffering. And in a way, this is a very radical practice because it usually we take in the good stuff and breathe out the bad stuff. We breathe in God's love. We breathe out our pain. Here we're doing the opposite. And in doing that, we're cutting at the root, our self-cherishing, the place where we're caught in the I concept. And for many of us, it's harder to do this practice for ourselves than for somebody else. At the same time, I would, I would say that if there's a place in you that can't deal with your own anger, as an example, then the anger of somebody else is going to be hard to open to. And I honestly think that it's impossible to have compassion for other people in ways that you don't have it for yourself. It's just that we know ourselves so intimately and what a mess we are in some ways. And we don't know what a mess other people are so that we think, oh, I can have compassion for them. But if you really knew what a mess everybody else was, then it would be just as difficult to have compassion for them. In a way, the most potent healing practice I know of, or at least one of the most potent healing practices, is admitting to yourself where you are most caught and doing Tonglen for that place. Imagining in front of you the representation of your core wound and doing this practice for that part of yourself. The teacher, Gurdjieff, has this very interesting notion that there's this place that we're so caught, he calls it your chief feature. You're so caught that you don't even know it, but it's the first thing everybody else sees about you, <laughs> which is an interesting, an interesting notion. What I'm saying here is that can we begin to notice that through our relationships, through what it is that's going on in our lives, and begin to have a relationship with that, begin to make conscious that which is previously unconscious, begin to love the place that we haven't opened to yet in our lives. Gretchen was saying, uh, Trump supporter here, the comments aren't funny to me. I was not trying to be funny at all. What I'm saying is that when, when we say Trump, everybody has a strong reaction. It's, it's not funny to anybody. It's, no matter what side of the aisle you're on, it's, it's uh, core issues. It's life and death stuff. So that the, the meme that he represents in people's conceptual worldview is, is very often touching on deeply unconscious material. And it doesn't make any difference if you're a Republican or a Democrat, or if you hate Trump or you love Trump, or there's almost nobody in the middle. Well, he's okay, but I'm not sure. It's like, it's one or the other. And it's, it's, it's a very difficult place for most people to get free and realize that these are only concepts that are causing suffering. And there is just as much suffering in grasping at something that you think is good as pushing away something that you think is bad. In fact, it's even more difficult to have compassion for the parts of yourself that are lost in grasping at things you like. Because when something is difficult, when we're suffering, we think, oh, well, I'm suffering. Let's try to fix this, right? What, what practice can I do now? 
what do I know? What meditative tools do I have to deal with how I'm caught right now? But when we're caught in the good stuff, then we say, oh, this is the way it should be. I don't have to pay any attention here at all. This is great. But you're just as caught. You're just as caught in being attached to Trump as, as pushing him away. Back in the day when I could get haircuts, when there was actually, you could go to the barber shop and I'd have to sit there looking at my face in the barber's mirror for like 20 minutes. I'm 77 years old. I used to be not 77 years old, right? So I'm sitting there looking, looking at this guy in the mirror for all this time. Can I love, can I love the wrinkles? Can I love the, the pain that's written on my face? You look at people's faces, you see the uncried tears. You see the place where people are not fully alive, as well as the place where they are alive. One, one of those crazy French guys said, at a certain age, by the age of 30, I believe you have the face you deserve. It's difficult to be with ourselves because we, we're aware of our narcissism, our cowardice, our, our fear, all those things. I remember going to meditation retreats back when I would do a lot of long retreats and I would, I, I had, very good posture. I could sit there really still, but there would be times during the treat where I would be feeling a lot of anger and other times I'd feel a lot of lust because those were the things that I suppressed in my life. So they were coming up during the meditation, these, these intricate sexual fantasies and this anger, which I realized was just a healing process. But at the end of the retreat, people would come up to me and say, you were so inspiring, just the way you sat there so still, looking so Buddha-like, and they didn't know that I was having sexual fantasies and wanting to kill people. So just yesterday, I listened to this TED Talk, which was by a woman named Kelly McGonigal. She's a, a Stanford professor who studies stress and has been for the last 10 years telling people stress is bad, and now she's feeling not so happy because... By telling people stress is bad, she's creating bad outcomes. Once again, what they're finding, and it really dovetails here with what Van was saying, is that it isn't stress that causes illness or suffering. It's conceptualizing stress as a bad thing. If, if we are starting to feel stress and we can conceive of it as something positive and useful and enlivening, then it doesn't lead to inflammation in the body. It doesn't lead to negative health outcomes. Like often when I, I teach large groups of people in person, I get sweaty armpits. And for I, I always was thinking, oh, it must mean that I'm nervous. But it's kind of weird because I don't feel nervous. I feel like I enjoy doing this. But it's just that there's a, like a stress. that It's like there's all this energy. It's like it's fun, actually. So that can we begin to reimagine our relationship with stress and use it to create change in the world? 